and um, I have the privilege of bringing you God's Word today. So let's start by reading the passage. And just to get you ready for Pastor Larry, we need to stand and we're going to read it together. Okay. Acts 6, 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Thank you. You can be seated. Let me pray for our time before God's word. Father, we do want to praise your name and thank you that we can come openly uh, and meet together freely, Father. Help us to not take that for granted. I pray that your spirit will be at work here and will change every single heart that hears these words today. I pray that you will guide my tongue and my mind that I may clearly express the wonder and amazement of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So we continue in our study of the book of Acts. Last week, Scott told us about three things. I know you all remember them, but I'll refresh your memory. Inevitable conflict, the priority of God's word, and the need for leadership development. We'll see those things that come into play this week. Stephen was introduced last week as one of the ones chosen to help with the Greek widows. Today we'll learn more about Stephen. So, um, take a look at your bulletin real quick. There is a little housekeeping there. On the third one it says, the joy before him. It should be the joy set before him, lowercase and him, uppercase. All right, just a little housekeeping there. You'll see why. Okay. The title of the sermon, Stephen, a man just like us, was inspired by this passage from James. James 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So, that inspired me um, to think about Stephen and was he really like us or not. But also, especially being like us in human nature. But also an old song from James Ward made me think of it. Um, and so, again, just to get you guys engaged. Next slide there. Um, I want you guys to read this together with me. Ready? Tell you about a, about a man, Elijah. Though he was a lonely man, he stopped the rain and called down fire. And ahead of the chariots he ran example of faith to open our eyes, but every believer should realize Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah was a man just like us, but he acted on the word of God, the word of God. Hold on one second. 
Then he goes on with other verses I won't make you read, and he talks about Moses, Daniel, and Queen Esther. Um, James was very much ahead of his time, even throwing a woman in there. So, now, verse 5, let's read that. Now we see that all these heroes were people that God could use, and every saint has been called by him, his kingdom first to choose, to be an example of faith to open their eyes, and every believer should realize Elijah was a man just like us, Moses was a man just like us. Daniel was a man just like us. Queen Esther was a woman just like us. But they acted on the word of God, acted on the word of God. Well, just for this service and for you, I wrote verse 6. So, let's read verse 6 together. Tell you about a man named Stephen. He served faithfully the widows in need. The Spirit filled him to overflowing, and for his Lord Jesus he would bleed. Every believer should realize Stephen was a man just like us. Stephen was a man just like us, but he acted on the word of God. He acted on the word of God. Okay, I won't quit my day job. I got that. So um, I understand that. But if, you, if James wants to use it, it's his. Go ahead and give it to him. So there's two things I want you to remember today. I Hopefully you'll remember a few more than that, but two things I do want you to remember. And do remember you can listen to the, these sermons from the website. I assume this is being recorded. Um, the first point I want you to remember is this. Stephen was a human, both women and men, just like us. And we'll see some amazing things he did and how he died honoring our Lord Jesus Christ. But the second point I want you to remember is based on Galatians 2.20. So this can be your theme verse that you can remember for the sermon. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer, no, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, who loved me. If you're living today for anything other than Jesus, you're just actually slowly dying. If you've died to all things but Jesus, then you can truly live. So here's my two summary points. These are the two points in summary now to even make it easier. Number one, Stephen was a man with the human nature just like ours. And two, if you're living for anything other than Jesus, you're just slowly dying. So, Let's go through the passage um, verse by verse, um, and then we'll discuss things further. So, verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. We met Stephen last week. Uh, he was a man full of faith and Holy Spirit, we saw last week. He probably has just finished the Apostles' Leadership Development Program that Scott spoke of last week. Now we see he's full of grace and power. He spoke with the wisdom of the Spirit. He was doing great signs and preaching and arguing for the truth of Jesus Christ as Lord. Two full chapters of Acts are given to, the, to Steve, Stephen and his, uh, his time. Um, and then there's a whole chapter next week that Bob will be preaching on about a sermon that he preached, the longest sermon recorded in Acts. And through Stephen, God changed the world. Through Stephen, God changed the world. Now that may strike you as odd, but consider Consider the top five or ten most influential humans in the history of man. Um, most of us would agree that Jesus is probably number one. Even non-believers would say that. But probably in the top five and certainly in the top ten is the Apostle Paul. When you look at the writings he's done and how that has changed so many things. Who do you think, let's read verse, verse nine. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Who do you think was at the synagogue from Cilicia? Does anyone know? Who was from Cilicia? 
Saul was. So Saul was there. Now Saul later um, becomes a follower and apostle of Jesus, and he, he was, went by the name of Paul. We know, though, that from seven, Acts 7, 58, um, Acts 7, chapter 7, verse 58, that as Stephen was being stoned, Saul was there as they laid um, their, their, their garments at his feet. We also know that Saul approved of the killing from chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll see more of this next week, but Stephen's ministry approach of going into the synagogue and the themes he preached were very much copied by Paul. The impact that Stephen had on Paul was clearly great. And thus Stephen's enduring impact of the world was through Paul. But we'll also see in a couple of weeks that the scattering of the church after Stephen's death leads to the ongoing explosive growth of the followers of Jesus. So God used Stephen to change the world. Let's see how God can use Stephen through the work of his Holy Spirit to change us. Verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and spirit which, which he was speaking. So as Stephen debated with Saul and his cronies, they could not win the debate. Stephen, with the indwelling spirit, and of course with the truth of Jesus, basically couldn't be bested. Verse 11. And they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Well, if you can't beat him with the truth, then let's twist it a little bit and see how that goes. Clearly they were angry and jealous of this upstart Stephen. Verse 12. As they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. We've seen this before. Remember, there was Peter and James were brought before the council. And then all the apostles were there a couple weeks ago, we saw. Um, the council would be the Sanhedrin. Bob told us about that a few weeks ago, 71, right, to break the tie. Um, so here they are again, verse 13. And they set up false witnesses and said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. Notice the accusation has changed a bit from blasphemy. And Luke makes it clear that there were false witnesses false witnesses as part of the accusers. Verse 14. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now we get to the final accusation, and it's all about this Jesus guy, the one that they thought they had gotten rid of. We know from the life and teaching of Jesus that he died unjustly, that justice, even Jewish justice that day, was not carried out. Luke is already, and will further make it clear that the same thing happened to Stephen, an unjust death. But let's do consider Jesus, and certainly it would have been Stephen's, teaching about the law and the temple. First, the law. What's the summary that Jesus gave of the law of God? Can anybody give me the summary of the law of God? What's that? Love the Lord your God. With, when, where, is, when, where is Hazel when I need her? Love the Lord your God. There, oh, come on now. You help me with these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Exactly. Very good. Thank you, Hazel. Um, then in Matthew, um, this basically Jesus' teaching, and this is a teaching that's been about, really brings the law keeping to a whole new level. Then in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And he did fulfill it perfectly. No one ever loved and obeyed God the way Jesus did. No one ever loved their neighbor the way Jesus did. And what about the temple? We know that Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, 2, that the physical temple would be destroyed, and it was in A.D. 70 by the Romans. We also know that Jesus said in John 2, 19, um, he related his body to the temple and that it would be raised up in three days. The temple was a place where God met his people. 
It was a place where sacrifices for sin were offered. Jesus knew his body was coming down, down to the grave, and Jesus knew the physical temple was coming down by the Romans. Now we know Jesus was pulled down to the grave. We know the temple was pulled down by the Romans, but what was the difference? Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He came up, he rose up, and he's alive today. And we'll see later, just as Stephen saw, Jesus standing before God on his behalf. Jesus is doing the same for us today. Amen. Amen. The physical temple that was torn down has not been rebuilt. And we know that it's no longer needed. For the first, the sacrifices are no longer needed. Jesus was the sacrifice for sin that those thousands and thousands of sacrifices were pointing to. John 1.29 tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know that Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. So no more sacrifices or sin are needed. All that is needed for cleansing from sin is trusting in that ultimate sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And secondly, there's no need for a temple, a place to meet God. Revelation 21, 22. And I, saw, and I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no need for a temple anymore. All those who accept the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus, are now dwelt by God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. So, last verse. And gazing at him, all who sat at the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. And with our last verse, we're told that Jesus looked like, that Stephen's face looked like the face of an angel. I think it's clear that what Luke wants to remind us of. Do you remember anyone else in the Bible whose face shone like an angel? Moses. Exactly. So Moses, after being with God on the mountain, what we have here is a sign of God's approval of Stephen. It's written on his face. When I read the account of Stephen, my first thoughts are not like my title, Stephen is a man or a person just like me. I look at Stephen and think, I'm nothing like him, and I could never be anything like him. What I would like us to consider is why Stephen was so incredible, and is there any possible way we could ever be like him? So the outline, Stephen, a man just like us, three points. What are you dying for? What is your joy? And the joy set before him, lowercase h, and him, uppercase h. First, what are you dying for? Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was clearly willing to die for something. And as we'll see next week, Stephen was extremely bold before those who could kill him this council. Stephen seemed to be driven by something. What, what about you and me? What drives us? What are you dying for? Okay, maybe I should say what, you're li- what are you living for, but medically speaking, that is not entirely correct. I won't bore you with a bunch of medical facts and stuff about how we're basically dying from the moment we're born, but consider this one little fun fact. Our ability to learn new languages begins to fade quickly by the time we're three years old. So, fine, I'll say, what are you living for? But really, what are you dying for? Point number two, I'm not going to keep you around that long. How can we answer the question, what are you dying for, or what are you living for? I think, I think a starting place is to consider, where is your joy? What is your joy based on? What gives you satisfaction? What excites you? What do you spend your time and resources on effortlessly? Let me give you some more ways to think about this very important question. So from Tim Keller, quick aside, why do I mention a particular person or book? For two reasons. One, to give credit where credit's due. 
but more importantly, so you can pursue these topics in greater detail. So, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeits Gods, and I recommend the entire thing, gives several ways to get to the roots of this issue, this question. Where is your joy? Where is your joy? Number one, let's see, here we go. First, he actually quotes someone else, too. He quotes Archbishop, Archbishop Templeton. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. So where does your mind go when you are waiting at the bus stop or sitting in a parking lot of traffic? What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Ask yourself, what do you habitually think about to get joy in the privacy of your heart? Number two, how do you spend your money? Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Your money flows most effortlessly towards your heart's greatest loves. Number three, how do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? How do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? When you pray and work for something and you do not get it, and you respond with explosive anger or deep despair, then you may have found your real God. Okay, how are you doing with these first three? If you're like me, the first time I read this and I got to this point, I was feeling really good about myself. By God's grace and the work of the Spirit, I no longer feel that way. And two things to learn from that. One, read things more than once. But two, be patient, be patient with God's work in you and in the lives of others. Okay, number four. Look at your most uncontrollable emotions. And for me, that was when I was alone. Okay, so I'm very good about looking fine in front of people, but alone. So look at your most uncontrollable emotions. And I found this so enlightening that I want to read you the actual passage um, from Keller's book. Um, He'll be saying the words idols, and I want that to be the same as what we're referring to here. Okay. A final work, a final test, or a final test that works for everyone. Look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Just as fishermen looking for fish know where to go when the water is roiling, look for your idols at the bottom of your most painful emotions, especially those that never seem to lift and that drive you to do things you know are wrong. If you are angry, ask, is there something here too important for, to me, something I must have at all cost? Do the same with strong, strong fear or despair and guilt. Ask yourself, am I so scared because something in my life is being threatened that I think is a necessity when it is not? Am I so down on myself because I have lost or failed at something that I think is a necessity when it is not? If you're overworking, driving yourself into the ground with frantic activity, ask yourself, do I feel that I must have this thing to be fulfilled and significant? When you ask questions like that, when you pull up your emotions by the roots, as it were, you'll often find your idols clinging to and he quotes a guy, David Pallison. The most basic question which God poses to each human heart, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust? Preoccupation, loyalty, surface, fear, and delight. Questions bring some of people's idol systems to the surface. To, to who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do, you really, what, what do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? Where do you look for power and success? These questions are similar ones. Tease out whether you serve God or idols, whether you look for salvation from Christ or from false saviors. 
Let me give you an example of my own life. I like to fix things. I fix, I fix sick kids at work. Um, then when I get home, I like to fix my car and bikes and things around the house. It's a good thing. But good things can be quite deceiving. When I looked at my uncontrollable emotions, anger on my part, I found it was at times related to my fixing things. I found that when my fixing was frustrated in some way, I'd become angry. Why? Ah, because my fixing things were the source of my joy or how I felt good about myself or even how I justified myself or made myself right. What was I to do? Point number three. For the joy set before him and him. For the joy beset before him, smaller case, Stephen. Was Stephen a man just like us? Can any of us women or men ever hope to be like Stephen and ultimately like Jesus? It depends upon what we see as our joy. Thomas Chalmers, the Scottish minister from 1800, said, The only way to remove the draw of a beautiful object on the soul is to replace it with a more beautiful object. The only way to remove the draw of a beautiful object on the soul is to replace it with a more beautiful object. To see what was Stephen's joy, what beautiful object was replacing all others, we have to jump to the end of the account of Stephen and see the joy set before him. What did Stephen see just before his killers attacked him? Acts 7, 55 and 56. But he, this is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Notice the Spirit wanted to emphasize one point. Jesus is standing. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Other times in scriptures you hear about Jesus taking a seat uh, at the right hand of God. But to stand means that Jesus is before the judge and making a case. The case here that Stephen saw, and the case here is for Stephen. And how because of Jesus' work on behalf of Stephen, Stephen is accepted. Stephen is righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, that this is Jesus, God made him Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Stephen knew and Stephen saw that Jesus, the perfect one, God in the flesh, the second person in the Trinity, had taken on Stephen's sin had suffered the wrath of God for that sin. Jesus had taken all the punishment that Stephen deserved. Then, all the good things, the righteousness that Jesus deserved for his perfect obedience was put on Stephen. No one ever loved Stephen like that. No one ever obeyed God like that. There was Stephen's joy. There is what Stephen was living for and willing to die for. Stephen saw something, knew someone more beautiful, than all other things, and that was Jesus. What about us? How can Jesus be that more beautiful object that will overshadow all other beautiful objects that are in our view? Now, with the joy set before him, capital H. The joy set before him, lowercase Stephen, and him, capital H, that is Jesus. The account of Stephen, at many points, is supposed to make us compare and contrast Stephen and Jesus. I want, to, I want to note one comparison very quickly, as Bob will be preaching more on this next week. Acts 7, 60. And falling to his knees, this is when Stephen's dying. And falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's being stoned to death. 
But he has this wonderful vision of Jesus. He forgives his killers, and he falls asleep. Not a bad way to go. I've seen quite a few people die. Stephen was not crying out in pain. He fell asleep. Okay, let's compare that to Jesus' death. There was no falling asleep. There was anguish. There was agony. From Luke twenty-two forty-four, And being in agony, this is Jesus, he prayed more earnestly, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Let's look at Matthew's account. And if you will, I know these chairs are soft. Read this together with me. Ready? Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Go back to Luke 16. Here we see in Luke's description of Jesus the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was in agony. He was sweating drops of blood soaking his heavy garments that they wore then and falling through the ground, to the ground through that. And this was just from a taste, a preview, an initial experience of what Jesus would suffer the next day. And of course, on the cross, we hear his cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus, why did Jesus die in such a different way than Stephen? One screams, the other sleeps. What's up? The best explanation that I'm most that I know of for this most important question is from a sermon by a pastor named Jonathan Edwards, an American pastor and preacher from the 1700s. It's titled, Christ's Agony. It's easily found on the internet, or you can borrow it from me or Will Doggett. He has a copy. It's hard to read, but it's worth it. I can say after reading it three or four times that it can be life-changing. If you want other opinions, you can ask Will or you can ask Eunice. They both read it. For our final point, I'll be referring to Edwards. But as I noted, it's hard to read and understand. So the most accessible teaching on this topic that I've found is a sermon by Tim Keller, a pastor from New York. The sermon is titled, The Last Temptation of Christ. And if you want to listen to that, I can send it to you. So why such agony? Why so different a death than Jesus' follower, Stephen? No one else has ever or will ever suffer like Jesus did. No one else has ever or will ever suffer like Jesus did. Now, I know some people are skeptical of that statement, so let me explain. Jesus suffered the full wrath of God in a way no other human has or ever will. One reason is the simple magnitude or quantity of Jesus' suffering. He was a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the other reason, and the one that can speak more to our hearts, is the quality of that suffering. The quality of Jesus' suffering has to do with that aspect of God's judgment that is complete separation from him. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That is what hell is, essentially where God is not. We are created for, we are created for fellowship, union, 
closeness to God. We fall apart, and we will fall apart eternally if we are separated from Him. Now consider this. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the triune God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have existed forever in perfect love and harmony. Now what happened to Jesus when He became sin for us? He lost that fellowship with God. Just beginning to experience this loss led to his agony and sweating great drops of blood. And then it was finalized with his cry on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not only what makes Jesus so beautiful, wonderful, and amazing. Why did Jesus go through such suffering? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him. What was that joy? Well, it's at several levels. First, there was his joy in glorifying God by accomplishing God's purposes in redemption. And given the context of the verse in Hebrews, it's joy as a victor over death and hell. But I believe there's an additional explanation, an explanation that can change our hearts. <clears throat> Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus, is spoken of in that chapter. Jesus is satisfied because of what his anguish has accomplished. And what has his suffering accomplished? That many may be accounted righteous because of him. The joy set before Jesus was you and me. And all who have been or will be made righteous before God because of Jesus' suffering. But wait. To truly understand the wonder, the beauty of Jesus, you must consider what his people are like. This many that are counted righteous. Consider his closest followers, the disciples. Jesus, in his time of greatest need, in his moment of greatest crisis, First, they fall asleep on him, and later they completely desert him. They're simply representatives of us. Listen, I find a good thing to say to myself is this. Jesus died for me because of me. Jesus died for me because of me. No one ever loved you and me like that. So, the reason we sang that song. So I want you to read this song with me, probably because I won't get through it, period. So let's read this together. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. When Christ the mighty maker died, for man the creature sinned. Let's go back to my conundrum. What was I to do with my displaced joy or my counterfeit joy? What could I, how could I die to those things and live for Jesus so I could truly live? How could I take this thing that I saw as beautiful and replace it with something more beautiful, that is Jesus? Could I be like Stephen? 
A good starting place, I think, for me at least, was what Jack Miller, the founder of the New Life Churches, would say. Preach your gospel to yourself every day. Every day. Every day, dwell on the beauty of Jesus. Dwell on what he did in his life, death, and then his resurrection from the dead. Meditate on why he did it, for the joy set before him, for you and for me. Only God, through the work of the Spirit, can change our hearts to find Jesus as our only source of joy. But we're not passive in the process. We have to struggle. We have to fight the constant yelling at our hearts that there can be another source of joy, another source of joy other than Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.7 I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. These are words from that fellow Paul we talked of. At the end of his life, he's about to die. It was a fight, he said, though. It was not a meander in a park. It was a race. We have to tell ourselves every day, if I'm living for anything other than Jesus, I'm actually just slowly dying. If I die for all things but Jesus, then I can truly live. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Very practically speaking, all this can never be done, done apart from God's word, the Bible, and the work of his indwelling spirit. Scott spoke of the Spirit last week. We must ask our Holy Father to fill us with the Spirit so that we are controlled by the Spirit. In regard, to, in regard to God's Word, expose yourself to it every day, multiple times a day. Listen to it preached here on Sunday. Discuss it with other, with other followers of Jesus. Look at our vision statement. A family of nations. A family. Do it together. Something I'm learning in addition to just studying the Bible I'm learning to let the Bible study me, to show me my heart, clear my mind, so I can see Jesus is beautiful. Knowing that no one ever obeyed God like Jesus, and no one ever loved me like Jesus, then I can find my joy in him and him alone, so I can become more like him, just as Stephen did. Amen. Let's have the um, closing, let's have the worship team come up, and any, any folks for the prayer team, if you can come down. During this time, or we're going to have one quiet song, I want you to consider, what are you living for today, or what are you dying for today? Where is your joy based? If you do not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, what are you living for? What are you seeking to give, what are you seeking to give yourself meaning in life? Where is your joy? Everything in this world will fail you. Come to Jesus today. To come to Jesus, all you need is need. Now, Maybe you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but your walk with him has become joyless. You do all sorts of things to make yourself feel good. Maybe Jesus is just one of many things where you seek your joy. Come to our Holy Father now. Ask him to change your heart that you may desire Jesus to be your one true joy.